Hello, my friends. Welcome to Rainbow Parenting. I am your host, Linz Amer, and today we are talking about queer kidlit with the one and only Kyle Lukoff. We're going to get to my conversation with Kyle in just a few minutes, but first I've got a couple of things I want to let you know about. First of all, if you like this podcast and you want to support us and our work making this podcast and all of the other fantastic projects we have going on over at Queer Kid Stuff, you can support our work over on patreon.com. If you go to the Queer Kid Stuff page, we are doing a special promotion just for the month of June for Pride Month. We are sending out an exclusive limited edition sticker bundle to new patrons and anyone who ups their tier on Patreon. Just for this month, you'll get a three sticker bundle of the Rainbow Parenting logo, of the It's Okay to Be Gay design from t-shirts way back in the day. And we have a Teddy logo sticker with You Are Enough on it. I'm so excited about these stickers. I put them on my laptop and I'm so excited to rep for the podcast and for queer kids stuff and to tell everyone who sees my laptop and these stickers that it's okay to be gay. So you can head on over to the Queer Kids Stuff Patreon page to sign up and you'll get your stickers. Thank you so much for everyone who does already support Queer Kid Stuff through Patreon. You are the folks who make this work possible. It is so, so important to have community members like this who support us via Patreon. So thank you, thank you, thank you so, so much for basically keeping us in business and helping us continue to do all of this fantastic work that is so soul-filling for me, but also is just trying to do important things in the world. And another thing, we are doing our very first live interview for this podcast for Rainbow Parenting. It's going to be on June 23rd with Amanda Jete Knox, who is a trans parent, has a trans partner, and has trans kids. So we're talking trans families. And I'm really excited to talk to Amanda. They have written some beautiful books. They do a lot of advocacy work for mental health. They are based in Canada, and I'm really, really stoked to chat with them. If you want to hang out with Amanda and I, you can ask live questions during this event. So head on over to the Queer Kids Stuff Instagram or sign up for our newsletter, and you can find the Eventbrite link, and we'll put that in the description notes below as well. All right. So this episode, we are talking Queer Kid Lit with Kyle Lukoff, who is a just absolutely brilliant picture book and children's book author. You might know him as the author of the fantastic picture book, When Aiden Became a Brother, which is one of my personal favorites. He's also a Newbery Honor and Stonewall Award recipient and a National Book Award finalist. He won a ton of awards for his middle grade book, Too Bright to See, which is absolutely gorgeous. And if you haven't read it, you should get on that right now. I personally recommend the audiobook, which is read by a trans person. You're going to hear from Kyle in our interview. We talked about a lot of stuff, especially queer kid lit and being trans creators in the kids space and just a whole lot more. But before we get to my conversation with Kyle, here's what you need to know. You might be a little bit surprised to hear this, but there is a sprawling legacy of queer people who have written probably some of your favorite classic picture books. I recently did a 
thread on Twitter about this that's a little bit more robust. And you can check that out over on my Twitter feed at Amer L-I-N-D-Z-A-M-E-R. But basically, queer picture book authors and children's book authors have been around for a really long time. Queer kid lit, like what I'm talking about with Kyle in this conversation, is not new by any means. Arnold Lobel was the author of Frog and Toad Are Friends and the entire Frog and Toad series, and he came out to his family in the mid-70s. Maurice Sendak was the author of classic Where the Wild Things Are, and he lived with his male partner for over 50 years, which I don't know about you, but I think that that's hashtag relationship goals. Margaret Wise Brown, the author of Goodnight Moon, which is probably on every single one of your shelves and the shelves of every single one of your friends, was an iconic chaotic bisexual. The personal life and death section of her Wikipedia page is just a wild ride. I also highly recommend the, I believe it was New York Mag, did a profile of her very recently that is really fantastic and talks about how she was kind of an experimental picture book author and how she thought about her craft. Highly recommend. Um, She also has a biography that was written about her called The Great Green Room that is also fantastic and completely wild. Highly, highly recommend looking into her. She had a very entertaining life. James Marshall, who wrote the George and Martha series, was queer and he also died of AIDS. Tommy DePaola was the author of Streganona, one of my favorites as a kid. He was gay and came out later in his life. And the New York Times gave him a really gorgeous obituary after his death in 2020, so not too, too long ago. Uh, there are lots of others. People are pretty sure that Hans Christian Andersen, the author of classic fairy tales like Thumbelina and The Little Mermaid, people are pretty sure that he was bi, bisexual. Um, Tove Jansen, who wrote the Moomin Valley series, the Moomin series, was also queer. These books that I've been talking about, also a lot of other classics like Stuart Little, Harriet the Spy, um, were all edited by Ursula Nordstrom, who was a queer woman and publisher and editor at the time. If we get into kind of early reader and middle grade, there are a lot of other people too. Anne M. Martin, who wrote the Babysitter's Club books. Louise Fitzhugh, who wrote Harriet the Spy, was queer. Oscar Wilde wrote a collection of fairy tales that I actually didn't know about and am currently reading, and they are absolutely sublime. And while this isn't quite in the picture book and like really middle grade range, this is a little bit older maybe, depending on where you're at in your literacy journey as a child, Louisa May Alcott actually was probably transgender and went by the name Lou, so the author of Little Women, famously. Um, That was one of my favorite books growing up. And so there are a lot others that I'm not including as well. So there is a long, long, long legacy of queer and trans people writing children's books and picture books throughout the era of modern literature. And even though a lot of these books aren't necessarily queer in their subject matter, we can recontextualize some of these classic books through the lens that their authors were queer and had queer identities and were gay or even trans. And I think that that's a really beautiful way to honor those authors and look at the classic picture book canon and see where queerness is inherent in some of our favorite books from childhood. 
So I really encourage you to go back to maybe I talked about one of your favorite picture books when you were growing up as a child in this section. I really encourage you to maybe revisit that picture book or those picture books with this newfound knowledge that the author was queer and see what that does and how you can talk to your kid when you're introducing that book or those books in your day to day with children in your life. Now that we have a more robust context for how to approach this modern conversation about queer kid lit with Kyle, let's get into it. Hi, everyone. Oh, my goodness. I am so stoked to bring on our next guest. I have Kyle Lukoff with me. Hello, Kyle. Hello, Linz. Hi. Oh, my gosh. All right. So I think it's important before we get into all of this work that we come to this as full humans. So how are you doing today? I'm having a really nice day. I moved to Philadelphia about two weeks ago, but I haven't been here because I've been traveling. Uh, so I finally started to settle in to my new home. And I spent the last couple of days biking around to like fancy grocery stores, buying things for my boyfriend's birthday dinner. <gasps> that sounds so sweet. What are you making him? I'm going to make paella. And he's never had paella because he's allergic to shrimp. So I just have to not put shrimp in it. Yeah, there you go. Yeah, that would be a barrier to entry for most paella, I would think. (laughs) Great. Well, I'm glad you're doing well and having a nice day. That sounds lovely. How are you doing today? I'm doing okay. I it's you know this. It's hard being a trans person in the world right now. But I think uh, it was raining earlier and now it's cleared up. And uh, I think my brain has also cleared up a little bit too. So we're in a better part of the day, I think. Um, before we get started with our conversation, can you tell us your pronouns and how you identify? Yeah, my pronouns are he, him, his. And I mean, I identify as lots of different things, but the most relevant for this conversation is that I am a gay man and I am trans. Beautiful. I love that answer. And I, and I like people interpreting that kind of vague question and however they like. And, and I love how you interpreted it. Cool. Um, so Kyle is an incredible kids book author. And I'm sure you describe yourself in in maybe different words and different ways for what you do creatively. So tell us about your work. Yeah. My website says I write books for kids and other people, which, you know, implies that children are full human beings, which is something mm-hmm. that I love. Right now, most of my books are picture books, early readers, and middle grade novels. I have not yet branched out into adult fiction and I have not written young adult yet, but I do have a really great idea for a YA novel that I'm going to get to eventually. And I even wrote a book for babies, which comes out next year. And I'm very excited about that one. Ah, I'm already really excited just to hear you say that. But I used to be a librarian. I was a school librarian for eight or nine years. And then I worked at Barnes & Noble for a decade before that. So I've spent over 20 years either like helping people find books or talking to people about books. Books are kind of my whole thing. Amazing. How did you make the jump from working in books to writing books? Uh, It wasn't a jump so much as it was like a casual wading into the water until eventually I was like submerged in it. I, you know, I always had different writing projects going on ever since I graduated from college, but I didn't decide to start focusing on writing for youth until the summer before I started my job because I was becoming more familiar with the field of young adult literature and decided that I should write a young adult novel about a trans boy because I did not know of any at that point that were by trans people. 
And I wrote that book. No one has read it except for a few people because nobody wanted to sign me on it, which is fine. It was a good decision. I like looking back, they were correct. Mm. And so then I decided to see if I could make picture books a thing for me. So I ended up selling the very first picture book I ever tried to write called The Storytelling of Ravens. And then I sold my second one called Explosion at the Poem Factory. And then I started to think about writing picture books more specifically about queer and trans kids. And that's how I started working on and then eventually sold when Aiden became a brother. And then Mm. everything went from there. It feels like a long process, but my first book only came out in 2018. So it feels long from my end, but I think everyone else sees it as like a meteoric rise. Not that I'm saying that people say that about me because that feels narcissistic, but you know what I mean? Yeah, no, totally. It's so interesting. I'm a creative too, and I work in books, I work in animation, lots of different things. And I'm I'm going to try not to get too creatory in in our chat, but it, it's going to devolve into that at some points for sure. But it feels so long on the inside. Like I'm sure you were, when did you actually write the manuscript for that first book? Oh, that very first book, I started working on it right after college, so like 2006, 2007. So it took more than a decade between me having that first idea and it eventually turning into something that other people could read. Yeah, I think that the writing process is slow itself for some people, but then the selling of that is even slower. And then I think the publishing of it is even slower. So like the books that you have that are beautiful and in your bookshelves take so much time and labor and effort and care to get there. And I think we we sometimes forget that. I think it's important to like show the difference between like, here's the finished product that you're showing to your kids versus like the time that it took and the the care and love that it took to get there from so many people, right? And that also doesn't even take into account the number of like months or years that a manuscript can just sit Mm -hmm. and not do anything. Like with my debut middle grade novel, Too Bright to See, I fully gave up on that book for a few years. I just, I didn't forget about it, but I had decided that it was a book that would never see the light of day because I didn't really think that it was a story that I could tell. And I didn't think that I was going to be good at writing it. And I decided just to not delete it, but to basically give up on it. And then it won a bunch of awards. (laughs) Uh, I was just about to say, (laughs) just like uh, the time factor in all of that and like, what it takes to get books like these and like how much and especially like the transness of it all right and like the ways in which our identities as trans people inform the work itself but then also inform how we move through the book industry and then how it gets to people's shelves from there so i kind of want to try and like break down those different parts of the journey. So your identity and like your writing, like I'd, I'd love to know about like, for, for me personally, like my understanding of craft was such a parallel journey to understanding my identity. And I don't know what your experience kind of like looked like in craft versus in self. I guess that kind of ties for me into a question that I get asked often, which is not the question that you're asking me, but I often get asked, why do you write about Mm. queer trans people? And the only answer I can give is because those are the people that populate my life. Mm. I babysit for the children of trans people. 
and I go to the funerals of trans people and I go on dates with trans people and I live with trans people. And there are trans people that I deeply hate and have held grudges against for years. And there's trans people that, you know, have been my friends and mentors for decades. Like I can only write these characters because I'm drawing from this very deep well of the people that are in my life. Mm. That then gives me the ability to extend my imagination beyond what cis people think is both possible and likely for our lives. I don't think of myself as being especially constrained by, yeah, the like larger cis imagination of what our lives can do or can be. I don't think that it's a coincidence that I only started writing my books after I had already been part of these communities for over a decade and after I was already like very settled into my identity. There is something to be said for that period where you are just learning about yourself and having all these like new revelations and coming at things in this like brand new way for you and the like creativeness that can come from that. And I don't mean to discount that at all. But for me, my best work comes from when I'm drawing from a topic that I've been ruminating over for you know, years and years and years. Mm, yeah, my, <laughs> I'm very different. And but like, my craft things that I do are very steeped in the thing that's like, I'm working through and healing in that present moment. I'm a very like present person when it comes to the work that I'm making. Like I started Queer Kid Stuff basically because I was taking queer theory in college and was also doing children's theater and was like, why aren't these two things talking to each other? And why doesn't that exist in the world? And then going off and doing theater and being like, hey, this is like actually a really homophobic space that I am having a hard time with. And so I went to YouTube and I was like, I'm going to make up my own web series. And then like, I didn't come out as non-binary until I think I was a year or two into the web series and then I wrote myself a coming out arc, which is is pretty a, a wild thing to do when you're like 25. That's a very interesting kind of like, I don't know, difference in the way that we approach work. And, and see, this is like, you know, the diversity of trans experience and like even just as writers and like craft people, right? And the way that we approach trans characters, but also just like how we do the thing we do. I feel like we don't get to talk about craft too much, right? Like we're constantly being asked just like about the transness and the queerness of our work, or at least this is for me sometimes. I feel like I get caught up in that conversation so much. And like, I don't actually get to talk about like, oh, this is how writing works in my life and how I ideate. In addition to the craft thing, we are rarely asked about differences within trans and queer experiences. Mm -hmm. I think that there's this idea that if you're trans, you're trans. And we know that nothing could be further from the truth when it comes to that. And I always love talking about how the differences within your queer and trans experience influences the kinds of stories that you tell, how you tell them, why you tell them, and all that. Yeah, absolutely. Because I think that like, I take meetings sometimes and like, I go into these meetings with the intention of like, I am here and I am here to tell queer and trans stories in this space. And I do get some like funny looks sometimes from like, generally cisgender heterosexual executives um, who are like, oh, like, don't you want to write white straight people. And I mean, they don't say it in those terms, right? But like, that's what I'm that's what I'm interpreting of like, you don't want to write other stories aside from queer and trans stories. And I think people think that I'm like pigeonholing myself. But I think I prefer the way that you're framing it of like wanting abundance in the space, right? And like trying to work toward that. Would you agree with that kind of like framing? 
Um, I don't think of it that way, but I don't disagree with you. I just write the books I want to write. Like I literally Mm -hmm. like in my second novel, which came out two weeks ago called different kinds of fruit. I initially intended the main character to be straight. And then my editor kept being like, Ooh, like her motivations don't make sense. The stakes aren't quite right. Like what's really going on. And I was like, Oh, I cannot write a convincing heterosexual. I tried (laughs) and I just can't, I don't, those are lives that are fairly opaque to me. I do not Mm. understand how a person comes to live that kind of lifestyle. It's fine. Like if you're straight and cis, like bless your heart, like good luck. Um, (laughs) That is not an experience that I've ever had. And I don't really know how a person understands their life within those frameworks. Yeah, totally. Do you find yourself like sissifying your stories like that in other ways sometimes? Like in in, when you're (laughs) the sissification of your work? (laughs) Uh, No, not yet. I mean, not all of my stories are about queer trans themes. Um, I have some books coming out that are not related. And my first two books weren't about that at all, but that wasn't on purpose. That was just because I also don't feel the need to shoehorn something very specific into something that doesn't require it. Mm, yeah. I actually, I, I did uh, a gig not too long ago where actually I read um, Explosions at the Poem Factory because I, I brought out just like a little stack of your books and I was just kind of like, Aww. hey, the, the, they knew you already. And I think you maybe had done a reading with that group before. And I- Which- was it? Um, Galaxy. Yeah, yeah, I did that a couple months ago. Yeah, they're fantastic. Um, yeah. I love like a group where I like get to actually be in front of trans and like non-binary kids. Um, honestly, until this year, it was very rare. I was just kind of doing public events. But I brought out the stack of books and I was like, here are some books from like Kyle. And they were like, recognized your name. And that was, that was cool. And I was like, hey, this is a book that Kyle wrote that actually like isn't really about like transness like isn't that kind of cool that trans people don't just have to write about like trans and like queer characters and I mean I know that like those are things an experience that I love writing about and that you love writing about too but like what about like writing something like explosion of the poem factory is like also a really cool thing to do right well at the opening you asked me how I identified and I took that very literally in terms of like queer identity because Mm -hmm. that's you know, what we both focus on a lot in our work, but I'm also a nerd. I also really like words. I, you know, spent eight years on debate teams in high school and college. My board book is related to Poem Factory because it's a very complicated poetic structure that I think I invented. I, there's no name. It's not like, you know, a villanelle or a sonnet or a sistina. I just invented a structure and stuck to it very tightly. Mm. I have another picture book coming out that is epistolary. And I love to say that something is epistolary (laughs) because that's such a good word. It's a great word. You know, I say that my whole thing is books and I mean that. And I don't mean that I only read books about people whose experiences closely mirror mine. I mean that I enjoy what words can do in a variety of contexts. And I like poking at words and seeing what they can do. Like one of the things that I love about poetry is that you can play with language in ways that really pushes an individual word to its breaking point Mm. and then seeing what happens. And picture books are really good for that because you have such a limited number of words and you have to maintain such a tight structure throughout that you can really push this like bareness of language to in turn reveal something much broader. Mm. There's something about picture books that when you read them, they feel 
like they were really easy to write. And I think that that's that's the problem with picture books. Like they're Mm -hmm. easy to read, which makes you think they're easy to write. But the easier something is to read, the harder it was to write. Yeah. I by the time this podcast comes out, I think this will have been announced. But like I have a picture book that I finally sold, but I which is very exciting because I've been trying to sell a picture book for literally forever since I got my agent. And it was so hard. It was so 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 hard and you have you have multiple picture books how how do you do that <laughs> uh i have 15 by the time everything comes out i'll have had 15 i think 15 oh my God. i just did the math in my head it's gonna be 15 holy bananas that is a <laughs> lot of picture books it's it's arguably too many Wait, is that right? No, 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 no. Three of those are early chapter books. Sorry. So 12, 12 picture books. I take back what I said. Okay. Not the early chapter Give books. Give or take. Yeah. <laughs> well, so what do you love about writing picture books? Aside from uh, you were talking about the language and about and about the poetry of it. And I like- mean, that's really it. I love rules. I love writing within structures and within strictures. And picture books have a lot of rules that you ought to follow to make them successful. I also love taking complicated topics and distilling them to what feels like their poorest truths. That's my favorite thing too about work with kids generally. Yeah. A thing that I said before that I still believe is that if you are incapable of explaining something to a five-year-old, it means that you probably don't really understand it. Yes. 100%. Like there are so many topics that you would think are like inappropriate or just like way above their head. But there there are a few topics that I have struggled with explaining to young children, Mm. which then tells me that I don't fully understand them myself. Yeah. I mean, like I, one of like the first topics that I was like, this is a hard one that I have to figure out was like intersectionality. And I was overwhelmed by like, oh, like that's such a big word with theory and papers and all this stuff. And I was just like, actually, when you boil it down, it's just layering different identities on top of each other and like understanding how that person might move through the world based on like privilege and fairness and all this stuff. And so like now I like have like tell the Stonewall story, like with like inclusive of like all of the stuff that was happening on that day. And like I, in my parenting book that that I've been working on, that's kind of this podcast is, is an expansion of, I outline how to talk to kids about AIDS, the AIDS crisis. And like, you can do that with these things. You can do that with these topics. And like, it doesn't have to be so scary and it doesn't have to be so hard that as we make it to be. And like, you can also do it through stories and you can do it through storytelling. And I don't know, we're coming at all this from an arts perspective, which is why I love talking to you. And I think I talk to a lot of educators and parents in this space. And it's a different mentality when you're kind of coming at it from a craft perspective, right? And then the the flip side also, because, you know, I was an educator for a long time, is if there's something that you don't understand and your kid asks you about it, you can say, wow, I don't know. Mm-hmm. You can even say, I don't know. Let's try to find out. Or, you know what? I don't know the answer to that question. I'm going to do some research and I'm going to tell you what I find. Like mm-hmm. if a kid asks you something and you literally don't know how to explain it, you can say that. It is actually fine to be honest with children about the limits of your knowledge. Yeah, I talk about that a lot. And it's it is so important to just like be a human alongside mm-hmm. your tiny human and like show that you are not like, you know, superhuman and like know everything about the world. And I think that like we need to be honest that like adults are people too, just mm-hmm. as much as kids are. And 
<sighs> yeah, that's we're 100% on the same page about that. Um, I wanted to shift it a little bit and talk about the sort of like larger movement the two of us are a part of. And I think especially you in terms of books. I think that books and like the diversity of books and picture books in particular has just really blown up the last couple of years. And I mean, a lot of the picture books that exist now didn't exist when I first started Queer Kid Stuff. And I am curious as someone, I, I kind of watched that from afar a little bit, kind of in my <laughs> my little YouTube corner. Um, and I'm curious what that was like for you in the midst of it and like a person who came up within that as well. Um, I don't really feel like I was in the midst of it. I know that it can look like there's this huge sea all of a sudden, and it would be easy to think that I have a more... Um, complete picture of it. But I also feel like I'm just in my little corner. Mm -hmm. Like I really do feel like I'm typing away at my like little stories and I have my agent who's amazing, but especially honestly, now that I'm not a librarian and now that I don't regularly like connect with other library people over a larger collection, I also feel somewhat isolated from a lot of what's going on. And I don't like that feeling. Um, something that's honestly hard about being an author is now feeling like there exists this kind of competition, which I know isn't fair mm. and that's not my fault. And that's like scarcity speaking. But I also know that, you know, if someone has $20 that they want to spend on a book, they can spend it on one book. And I also don't necessarily feel like they have to spend it on my book. Um, you know, because I was a librarian, I'm so accustomed to asking someone what they want to read and then helping them find something that meets that need mm. that I have told kids at book fairs, like, oh, it sounds like my book isn't a good fit for you. It sounds like you're not going to like this one because I don't want to sell you my book if you're not going to like it. <laughs> like, I'm fine. I don't need the, you know, however many cents that I get of royalties from pushing my book onto someone who isn't necessarily the right reader for it. But at the same time, like, I want to be successful. And I know that those numbers say things to potential publishers. And, you know, I would like to earn out. Uh, so it's a complicated place to be in that I hadn't really foreseen. And I don't especially like it. Yeah, I think that, like, making queer and trans work for kids is really hard and like really isolating within the industry. It for sure can. I mean, I don't know if you experienced this, but like I feel othered a lot of the time from the kids media industry because I'm queer and trans. But then I also feel othered from like the queer and trans community sometimes because I do work in the kids space. Do you experience kind of like that weird dichotomy? Um. I mean, like one thing that I wanted to say before I answer oh, yeah. that question is that another problem is that I'm simply not really a team player and I hate group projects. So Fair as much enough. as I also <laughs> might want to work with people from like an ethical perspective, I know that I'm bad at it and I will drop the ball and I like will not finish what I start. And that's not fair to anyone. Oh my God. I'm like the opposite. I'm like the person who's like, come collaborate with me. <laughs> I wish. I love the idea, but I hate group projects. I just can't do it. That is fair enough. I never could do group projects. I just, I think that's why I'm also very happy as a writer because I don't mm. have to work with anyone. I can just write my own books and you can write your own books and we don't have to talk about it or we can talk about it, but I don't have to like, yeah, we have to talk about it. <laughs> but like, I'm not really like your deadline is not my deadline, you yeah, know? Totally. Um, oh, but so to answer your question, I don't feel especially othered for reasons 
trending along identity lines, mm. a thing that I have grown to believe is that everybody feels like they are outside of whatever communities they want to be within. And mm. that every single person that you will talk to will probably say, yeah, I really feel like I don't fit in in this group because of this reason. But someone mm. else might say, oh, wow, that person is definitely like this person is the center. Everybody knows them. Everybody loves them. Everyone feels connected to them. But that person might say, I don't, you know, that other person is way more popular than me. And that person fits in in a way that I don't. Mm. Maybe you will talk to someone who says, yes, I definitely feel like I am central to this and I do not feel excluded. But that seems contrary to how a lot of people just view their position in the world. I just, I don't know. I'm also used to feeling a weirdo. Like I don't expect groups to see me as being integral to them. Um, and sometimes that makes me sad, but I'm also fine. And I think that's just yeah. part of my personality more so than like a specific identity that I, that I might be a part of. Yeah, that's that's totally fair. Um, and I probably need to bring some of this to my therapist, Sorry. <laughs> which is uh, the truth of, of so much of what we do anyways. Um, I talk about my work so much in my therapy um, because it's hard. It's really hard being a trans person right now. And it's really hard, especially while um, all this stuff is targeting kids. So I don't know if you feel like a little in the crosshairs, especially because we work with the trans and queer kids who are being targeted right now. And like, I feel like banging like as many drums as I can within the kids media industry of like, pay attention to this stuff. So I don't know. What is, um, what is your drum banging. <laughs> so I'm like, I do see you banging the drum and I appreciate it. And I often retweet what you say because you're better at that than I am. So it's funny. So I came out as trans and then transitioned close to 20 years ago at this point. Wow. Um, and for the majority of my adult life, I have consistently reminded people that I'm also a white person and I'm also a man. And I also, you know, when people look at me, they assume that I'm a man and I did that on purpose. And that gives me a significant degree of safety that is not mm. shared by so many of my siblings who either because they are people of color, because they are less easily mistaken as cis by their, by strangers, because they are like trans feminine and are dealing with trans misogyny. So I spent a long time being like, nope, I'm fine. You don't need to feel worried about me. Please focus your concern on the people who would benefit from like greater safety measures or whatever, which isn't me. However, then one of my books was on the stage behind the Florida governor as he signed a bill into law, which means that they know my name. Like they specifically know me and I do not like that. I'm also Jewish and mm -hmm. I'm like, Jewish too. As, yeah. Like as a Jew, the idea that they literally know my name brings me a significant degree of anxiety and has in yeah. some ways altered the way I view my personal safety. But at this point, it remains still largely theoretical. I've only gotten the occasional threat and none of the threats that I've gotten have seemed particularly actionable or direct. They have seemed more like people like venting their anger less than mm -hmm. someone telling me what they plan on doing. But I don't love that I now have to parse that. 
Yeah, it's pretty it's pretty horrible. Um, when I first started queer kid stuff, one of the first we got picked up by the Huff Post, and then that article got picked up by the Daily Stormer, which is a oh, good. Oh no, you don't need to tell me. Oh, you might need to tell your audience. I know what they are. Yeah, they're a neo-Nazi um, publication. I don't know if they're still around or not, but um, it doesn't matter. It was horrible, and uh, as well as a Jewish person, like the anti-Semitism that came at me, and like people tweeted nooses at me. I got my first death threat. Like it was pretty horrific. And um, I 100% feel you on that. And we can for sure exchange um, some cyber safety tips um, because I've had to become a little bit of an expert on it, which is a horrible thing to have to be, but is uh, necessary in this line of work. And, And what's really interesting, having gone through that, what, six years ago now, it is really pretty wild to see it now happen on a public stage, not just to you, but to queer educators across the country. Like It is bad right now. I have honestly never seen it quite like this. And this is something that I personally experienced six years ago. And I feel like I'm kind of, I don't know, knock on wood or whatever. But I, I think I'm a little off their radar right now because I um, <laughs> I haven't been producing the web series since 2019. But now seeing so many people go through it, it's it's really hard. It's really hard. Um, and I'm so sorry you're experiencing that right now. It is, it is awful. And like the personal safety aspect of it, like I'd never post anything about my location ever, ever online. Um, but we can exchange some tips um, after we get off. Um, but yeah, just like that's the reality of like doing this work. And like, I don't know about you. I like just sing ukulele songs with my teddy bear. And like, I think that that's pretty innocuous. I don't know. I think picture books are too. I mean, we believe that, but we also know that they don't. Sure. Yeah. <sighs> I wish we could just like make our fun stuff and tell our cool little stories without people getting so mad. Yeah. That would be nice. <sighs> well, um, <laughs> off of that nice and heavy moment. Um, no, but I appreciate you sharing that space with me um, and sharing that with like listeners too, because I think that it's a part of our work that is um, is kind of like known and understood, but isn't really like felt on a human level of like we are people behind our books and behind our YouTube channel. Um knowing that like it's hard and like also we're like probably undercompensated for our work and like <laughs> and like the um, the amount of emotional labor that it takes to deal with that and like having to derail like a writing day because i have to deal with trolls on the internet like the practical impact it has on our day-to-day lives and like keeps us from being creators like most other people might because they don't hold our trans identity and they don't work in this specific space, right? Yeah, it does feel like a lot of writers who are, you know, straight and cis and white are possibly affected sort of tangentially or they want to be affected because they want to stand in solidarity with us, which I appreciate. But I could get so much more work done if I wasn't also like scared of things. And also like, I do know that I'm not getting the invitations to like school visits that one would expect from a person with my like accolades and resume. And 
I also know that I am very specifically losing income because of this. And it has nothing to do with the quality of my work and it has nothing to do with my ability to speak in front of children. It has everything to do with the fear or the belief that my presence is or will be inflammatory and incendiary. And that means that my colleagues who are straight and cis and white are also profiting off of this and it is not their fault. And I can't exactly ask my colleagues to say, Hey, have you considered booking a like queer and or person of color for this instead? Because they also don't know if they were the first choice or the second choice, or if someone floated my name or like Leah Johnson's name or Mm -hmm. Jerry Kraft's name. And the administrator is like, Oh, we would love to have that person, but we just can't handle a controversy right now. Let's get. And then they throw off the name of someone who's also as talented and successful as we are, but also more palatable. And yeah. none of us have any idea how those conversations are happening or when they're happening, but we know that they are. Mm-hmm. I'm pretty busy, but I would be busier if I were cis. That is inarguable. I mean, I would be less busy because my books wouldn't, wouldn't be as good, but you you know what I'm saying. No, totally. No, I, I, I 100% agree. And like, I mean, we can't take gigs in Florida and Texas right now, <laughs> like let alone let them reaching out to us. And I also like there was one thing um, that I hadn't thought about before, but I was in like a Facebook group or something with queer educators and someone put in a question to the group of like my voice, I'm on T, my voice is dropping. How do I explain this to my kids? And I commented like I do in like, you know, queer, trans, like Facebook groups who are in spaces with kids like, hey, like, why don't you use like a queer kid stuff video to like help you start that conversation? And someone else commented like they can't use that in their classroom, like they could get fired. That was like a huge way that queer kid stuff was being used for a really, really long time. And I think still is. But like the fact that like teachers can't use my work in their classrooms to do the thing that it's supposed to do in like helping catalyze conversations and be like a focal point for a learning, it takes away so much power from the work, I think. And and I don't know, just makes me a little sad <laughs> that it can't be in classrooms right now, you know? Yeah, it is heartbreaking and infuriating on a lot of levels for a lot of reasons. Yeah. <sighs> yeah, that stuff sucks. Not fun. Um, but anyways, let's uh, maybe shift on to something a little nicer before we um, go into a question that we wanted to get into. Um, what about your work are you most proud of? What about my work am I most proud of? I think that I would have a different answer depending on when you asked, because it's just whatever is in the top of my mind. Sure. But I am really proud of the response that I've been getting to my second novel, Different Kinds of Fruit, so far. Mm. I have gotten so many of my adult trans friends writing me saying that they didn't realize that they needed this kind of representation in books and that they can't believe Mm. that I am able to talk about this stuff to kids. I was worried that my peers would just not like the way I was talking about us or Mm. feel like I was like airing like dirty laundry that made us look bad or something. But so far the response that I've been getting is like, this is so complex. This is so nuanced. Like I really understood where all these characters were coming from. I got an amazing message on Twitter from some like 20 year old who was like live tweeting his experience of reading it and was like, I've never read a book like this before. It was so good. Mm. And I don't think that most people will like different kinds of fruit as much as they like to write to see. They're very different books. They're doing very different things. Different kinds of fruit is definitely more niche, but I I love it. And I'm 
very proud. I mean, I personally like it more than Too Bright to See. And I am very proud of myself for pulling it off because I didn't know if I was going to until I got the feedback. Have you read it yet? I don't know if you've read it yet. I have not. And I'm okay. really excited. <laughs> I was vaguely worried that you had read it and that you were hating it. And you were like, can't talk about it. Like this book is so bad. I hate Kyle for writing. Oh my God, I would never. I'm very proud of it. I would love to hear your thoughts on it when you finish. Oh my gosh. Yeah. I, um, I'm i still in the middle of Too Bright to See. I have to get through your oeuvre. <laughs> It'll, I'll get there eventually. I'm not, I have a hard time with books right now. I have a hard time with my attention span and I'm, I'm trying to work through my internalized ableism around my ADHD and like figure out a better way to be a book lover because I, I loved books as a kid. I like could not stop reading, stay up till 4am in the middle of the night with like a blanket covering my light. So my parents couldn't see that I was still awake, like kind of reader. And I've lost that in adulthood a little bit. And that's like a little sad. So I'm trying to, I'm trying to work through that a little bit. So I will 100% get through your book and then to your next one. You got a lot of stuff to read though. So I know I'm sorry. (laughs) which uh, you should never apologize for. Okay, so there's this thing online, if people don't know about it, that's like a hashtag own voices movement. And this is a complicated thing. And I want to talk a little bit about why it's complicated, because it has a lot to do with like the books that you go out and get and bring to your kids and like why we make those choices. Can you talk a little bit about what own voices is? And like, let's dig into some of those problems and good things about it, because I think it also is kind of important. So the term was originally coined by a a young adult author named Karen Doivis. I am probably mispronouncing it. I'm very sorry, Karen. It's spelled (laughs) D-U-Y-V-I-S. And it had a fairly simple intention initially, which was simply to highlight books written about a community by members from within that community. As things tend to happen on the internet and in life, the, that term has since metastasized into something that is less helpful than it was intended as. Mm-hmm. But at its core, it is still about the idea of representing communities that you are also a part of, which is not to limit people to only writing about communities that they are parts of, but rather to highlight that if you are not part of a community, you probably probably do not have the same depth of expertise and well of imagination that someone from within that experience has. There is also this conception that because a book is so-called own voices, it must automatically be good. Mm. And I do not think that that was also the intention. But for me, a lot of it comes down to whether someone is allowed to profit from the need for representation without similarly investing in creators of that same identity. I don't think that it's fair to profit off the need for something without investing in those same creators. Yeah, I absolutely agree. And I think that like the other nuance that does I've seen come up before is that um, like gatekeeping closeted folks. So folks who are like not out in the moment of like their book coming into the world, but then like either never come out or like later come out and it being like an issue that they were talking about a community that they like, it was perceived that they weren't a part of it, but like actually they were. And like the, I don't know, internet and like perception and authorship are all just like really complicated things when we have to deal with a culture where we're not safe. I don't know. What I like to take away from own voices is especially like, I don't know, I'm a queer trans person who writes queer trans stories. And like, I want people to maybe prioritize my like 
economic well-being over a cis person who might be writing a trans story. And I think like being purposeful about going into a bookstore or going into an online bookshop and seeing like what experiences you want to read about and expose your kids to being purposeful about like where you're putting your money, right? That's like kind of what it comes down to. There's no ethical choices under capitalism, but you can also try a little harder. (laughs) I think that that is a great summary of own voices and like using it as like a methodology and like a guideline for like, okay, this is how we might want to engage with a topic with our money, but like also with the storytelling like piggy bank that we're building for ourselves and our children as we're raising them. So yeah, I just, I wanted to talk about own voices because it's, I think it's an important conversation, especially as like queer trans people who write queer trans stories and uh, just encouraging people to um, think about like us as authors and like our perspective being valuable in that way. Yeah. Cool. And with that, we're going to take a little break and then we'll be right back. And Kyle and I are going to answer some of your questions. All right, we are back with Kyle Lukoff, and we're going to answer a couple of questions. You ready, Kyle? I am ready. All right, let's do it. All right, so this person is asking about how to give a good recommendation for someone looking for queer and trans books. So I'm going to put on my librarian hat for now and take off my author hat. There are a lot of classes actually on this idea of something called reader's advisory, which is literally just finding out what kind of book you should recommend a person. And you just ask questions. So like, you know, you say books, but the question is like, what age are you looking for? I assume because this is like queer kid stuff, we're talking about kids books. So the question is, do you want a book for babies? Do you want a book for five-year-olds? Do you want a book for 12-year-olds? Do you want a book that you are reading to a child? Do you want a book that a child is reading to themselves? And then another question might be, do you want something that's fiction or nonfiction? Do you want something that gives you information or do you want something that is an imagined story? Another question might be, is it really important that you learn something from the story? Or are you more interested in a story that is, you know, just fun or interesting? A question could be, do you want a story about a specific identity? Do you specifically want a picture book about a trans boy? Do you want something that is more general, explaining a variety of identities to someone? Do you want a picture book that is specifically has two moms or something that's about all kinds of families? Um, A question that I often ask my students is, do you want a book about a kid who has a lot in common with you? Or do you want a book about a kid who is really different from you? And that often got really interesting responses. Yeah, a lot of recommending books is asking a person questions about what they really want. And we're really lucky to live in a time where there's like a good number of these books for a variety of ages. But in some ways that makes it even harder to recommend because you have more than just like the three. Like you have more than just like Tango Makes Three and Oliver Button is a sissy. (laughs) So much more than that. Oh yeah, there totally is now. Is there a way that you would like shift that conversation with a child versus a grown up? Mm, no. I mean, same question, honestly. Do you want information or do you want imagination? Do you want mm. a grown-up to read a book to you or you do you want it to be a book that you read by yourself? I mean, if you're 12, I'm not going to say, do you want a grown-up to read to you, obviously, although not necessarily. Yeah. Just, I mean, another good question is what is a book that you read lately that you really liked? Like if you know that like a baby is obsessed with Sandra Boynton, then everywhere babies would be a good choice because those have like a similar sort of like rollicking rhythm to it. If 
you know, your kid just read, I don't know, like The Jumbies by Tracy Baptiste and was really into that. Mine's scary too. That might be a good choice. If you have a kid who's reading up, there are a lot of YA books that are like technically young adult, but still fine for like an 11 or 12 year old. But that's also where like librarians and booksellers come into place. Like I often get questions now, like, hey, Kyle, like, can you recommend a book for my kid? And like, no, I can't because I'm busy. You should go to your bookstore or your library because there's people there who are working right now and it is their job to help you. And it's not my job right now. Oh my gosh, I should start doing that. <laughs> yeah, you really should. Like it is, that is yeah. a job. It is a profession. There are people who are good at it. I'm not saying that you're bad at it, but like. There's too much. There are too many people asking. Yeah. If you're at your library, then it's your job to help people i mean librarians have other jobs i know that but mm-hmm. you know if you're a children's librarian it's your job to help someone find a book and that's what you're going to do with your time as opposed to yeah. who's like not doing that job right now yeah i think something i've tried to do is like curate like book recommendations and like do like the bookshop.org like affiliate link thing um which i think is great and like i can point people to but um yeah there's a lot to recommend now and it's starting like those lists are starting to get really long <laughs> and figuring out how to discern amongst like all of the things and then like thinking about own voices that we talked about and like what specifically is your child looking for and i think a lot of parents don't think to ask those questions of their of their young folks cuz we're thinking like topic first sometimes and like i want to introduce this thing to my kid versus like going from like an interest first approach which i think is very interesting and then like also thinking about like when you have that lens of interest with your child and you're finding a book. Like, how can we look at that interest through a queer and trans lens as well? Another question that I might ask now, if I was in that business and specifically recommending like queer trans themed books, I might say, do you want a story where the person's identity is the problem that gets solved? Or do you want a story where the person's identity is just one part of the story? Because like, I personally hate the kind of story where your identity is a problem. I don't like those books at all. I don't read them. But that doesn't mean that other people don't like them and that other people shouldn't read them. But having that information is really important because if you just want a story where people are gay and everything is fine, you're going to be really upset if you read a book where a person coming out is posited as the problem to be overcome. But similarly, if you're in a really tough spot in your life and you want to read about someone experiencing something similar to what you're currently dealing with. You don't want to read a book where it feels like someone is just bragging about how great their life is while you're just there with like your terrible parents and your terrible school. So that knowledge also feels really important right now, especially because we have a variety of books to choose from at this point. So honestly, that might be the first question that I ask. Yeah, no, I think that that's a great thing because I think that like trans and queer stories kind of get like lumped in like one thing when like in stories where like the the conflict is about identity. And I think like we're talking about a diversity of these kinds of books and these kinds of stories that moves beyond and includes, but like also is other than that. Yeah. But it's still queer and trans and it can be still queer and trans, even if it's not about like that identity conflict itself. Mm Mm-hmm. Cool. Well, I think we answered that question. Thank you so much for joining me today. This was super lovely. I'm so glad I got to introduce you to everyone who hopefully already knew who you were. Um, (laughs) And uh, can you tell folks where they can find you on the internet or they can interact with your work and what you do? Everything is pretty much just my name, which is K-Y-L-E-L-U-K-O-F-F. My Twitter handle is Kyle Lukoff Writes. My website is myname.com. I mean, it's 
kylelukoff.com <laughs> m-y-n-a-m-e that would be silly um my instagram i think is kyle lukoff writes it might just be my name it's one of those two like if you're trying to find me either go with my name or my name writes and you'll probably figure it out awesome thank you so much thank you yeah of course Oh my gosh. Kyle is the absolute best human. If you don't have his picture books in your home, in your library, in your school, go drop everything, go to bookshop.org, go wherever you get your books and pick up a couple of copies of some of Kyle's picture books. Also, the audiobook of Too Bright to See is available wherever. I highly recommend it. That's how I read Too Bright to See. Um, I'm also really excited to read his newest book, Different Kind of Fruit. I've heard that it is absolutely fantastic. And he's got a ton more on the way. So follow him on social media. Keep an eye out on all of the beautiful, beautiful literature that he has coming out. And thank you so, so much for joining us. We've been talking to a lot of people in adjacent justice spaces from Carly Manis about reproductive rights and abortion. And we've been talking to Britt Hawthorne about anti-racist parenting practice. And we've been talking a lot about how these justice spaces overlap with queer and gender affirming parenting and education strategies. And I was really excited to talk to Kyle and bring this conversation with Kyle to all of you because we're starting to get a little bit deeper into queer and trans and gender-affirming parenting and education practices through this conversation with that context of multiple justice movements and how everything weaves together. And now we can start getting a little bit deeper into kind of what the core of the work we're doing is. So I hope you've enjoyed coming on that journey with me. We're going to dip in and out of other justice movements, too, as we're talking to different experts. I'm really excited. I just had a conversation with Emmy Aguilar, who is a two-spirit arts educator and is a queer indigenous person. And we talked a lot about justice spaces that intersect over early childhood arts and education. And I'm really excited for conversations like that and more that we have on the docket for y'all. If you like this episode or any of our episodes, make sure you give us a rating and leave a review on Apple Podcasts and tell a friend. Get a friend to listen to the podcast and join our Rainbow Parenting community. You can follow me on Twitter and Instagram at Amer, L-I-N-D-Z-A-M-E-R. I'm also on TikTok at Queer Mixter Rogers. You can check out Queer Kids Stuff at QueerKidsStuff.com and follow at Queer Kids Stuff on all the social platforms. Make sure you check out our Patreon page and all that good stuff. Thank you so much for tuning in this week. That's all we got for today. Talk soon. Rainbow Parenting is hosted and created by me, Linz Amer. It's produced in partnership with Multitude and is edited by Misha Stanton. The theme music is by Amanda Darchangelis and the logo artwork is by Abe Tenzia. <laughs>